virtually everyone bought from the salesman. man. So when you mention the idea of getting home delivery from a salesman, man, to anyone at one of a certain era, you know, a certain generation, a certain time period, it's not unusual. And it, and it, it makes them feel nostalgic because they remember their childhood and how it used to be. This is Barry Joseph welcoming you to your guide to the age of effervescence. This episode, you'll hear interviews from a couple who revived a down-and-out seltzer works. We'll launch our Heard on the Street segment and take off on a seltzer route with Walter Backerman, whose voice opened today's episode. So kick back, siphon heads, pour yourself a cold glass, and let's get started. But first, why are we here? We're here because I wrote a book, Seltzertopia, the extraordinary story of an ordinary drink. And that story is extraordinary. In fact, I spent almost 15 years uncovering it and crafting it. In the beginning, I used every internet means at my disposal to find new leads. I used Facebook and Twitter, but my research actually predates both companies, if you can even imagine a time without them. In the beginning, I used podcasts, launching one in the first wave. It was called Give Me Seltzer. So this is actually my second seltzer podcast because one was just not enough. This one will be different, of course. It will focus on my interviews with the diverse, charismatic, and fascinating figures who fill Seltzertopia with so much life. So on one hand, this podcast will be a behind-the-scenes of sorts to the book, but it will also stand on its own for anyone interested in carbonated water. I'll also include segments about my adventures on the path to Seltzertopia, getting the book published, as well as my international book tour. Next episode, for example, I'll tell you about my time with sex therapist Ruth Westheimer at a seltzer pitch. Finally, in looking for a name for you, my listeners, I came up with Siphon Heads. A siphon is the old-fashioned bottle that has been used for over a century to serve seltzer, to spritz seltzer, to admire seltzer. And the metal part at the top that releases the seltzer is the head. So yeah, like the deadhead fans of the Grateful Dead, I welcome you, one and all, as Siphon Heads. First up, travel with me to Pittsburgh to learn more about the owners of the Pittsburgh Seltzer Works, a company that plays a key role in my book, Seltzertopia. When Marion met Sam in high school French class, she didn't know that someday they would marry, build a home in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and take ownership of a defunct Seltzer Works. Decades after selling it to a long string of proprietors, whom I document in my book, Seltzertopia, I spoke with them both over the phone about why they did it, what it meant to them, and the carbonated legacy they left behind. Uh, I was born on Long Island in Belfort in 1949, and I moved to Pittsburgh in 1955. My parents were customers of pop, beverage, which had taken over Pittsburgh Seltzer Works. Yeah, in Pittsburgh, pop is soda. I actually didn't like it that much. Um, you know, it's sort of uh, acidic. So as a kid, I didn't like it. But of course, once I figured out you could put chocolate syrup in it, it made a world of difference. Uh, I was out of the house in the 60s, late 60s. And uh, when I moved, into my own apartment. I don't remember this. I think I saw the truck and remembered it and decided that I would uh, 
get it, and the owners who were in their late 70s at the time were hesitant to sell it to me because they thought I was going to steal their bottles. So it took a tremendous amount of time and effort to get them to sell seltzer to me. Basically, the, the, the guy who delivered it had to be 75 years old, and he had maybe a 60-year-old helper. And they were sort of disgusted that they had to still do this. But, you know, it was what they did. It was their world, so they were proud of it and disgusted at the same time. Um, <laughs> and basically, so after a while, I offered, I, I, I do other consulting work, and I was doing that part-time, so I was interested in buying the business. And I was just getting married, and my wife and I discussed it. And we agreed to buy the business. And then it took me about a year of basically working for them part-time for free before they'd sell it to me, sort of as an apprenticeship, help bottle and learn how to fix mm. bottles, that type of thing. In the end, I just said, I can't do this anymore for free. Sell me the damn business. And they did. I think, you know, they were, I think they were surprised that anybody would be interested in it. They were selling maybe 30 cases, 20 to 30 cases a week. I mean, this was not a good business for them. Jimmy Rosen and his sister was Molly Rosenberg, brother and sister. The way they made their money was they sold uh, cases of soda at the pizza shops and sandwich shops. They had all these old customers. So that's why they were pop beverage. Mm. They owned Pittsburgh Seltzer Works, but, I mean, that was just sort of a thing they did one morning a week kind of thing. Mm. So um, when I bought it, I discontinued the soda business. I had no interest in that. I just wanted to do the seltzer business. Uh, you know, part of it was my father had passed away, um, and... I, it was sort of a, a memory of him. And also, I had adult tastes. I mean, I was then in my 20s. Taste changes, you get older. When we bought it, it was right about the time we got married, but I want to ask her. She, she will. Hey, babe, when did we buy the house for business? 81? 1981. Was it the same time we got married? Yeah. It was 1981. They had a few customers who were basically transplanted New Yorkers and a couple of Italians who just knew good bottled water. But basically, I got the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette to write an article about us, my wife and myself. Her name is Marion, M-A-R-I-O-N. From that article, the business took off. And then we were... We were in uh, the Wall Street Journal. We were in uh, a bunch of newspapers all over the country because of it was just an unusual business. And there were maybe three or four places in the country you could get it. And all the other places that existed, except for Gimme Seltzer uh, in New York, were business for 50, 100 years. It was something we did uh, on the side couple days a week, about 18, 19 years. 
my main source of income. I'm a I'm trained as a rehabilitation counselor, and I've been a an expert witness, forensic economist, for about almost 40 years. That's what I'm trained to be, and that's what I was doing. And I was always self-employed, so I would just work X number of days and in that and do the seltzer on the side. Bottling's a two-person operation. She did most of the bottle repair, um, so she swept the cases. She loaded the trucks. There were times when I was in court, and, you know, she never drove the truck. And I didn't drive the truck after about, I'm guessing, seven or eight years we hired drivers. Um, but somebody had to help load the truck and unload the truck. And if I was doing that, she'd be loading the truck. And at times, we didn't have a lot of bottles. So we'd go out and deliver bottle and go out and deliver again. She was my partner and an equal partner. We did grow in size, but I never had more than one driver. It was always part-time. Um, it really, you know, Pittsburgh is a small city. I mean, um, this is the, the company now is making, I think, real money, but that's only because of the change in the city of Pittsburgh and the huge influx of young people and hipsters. It, it's a hard business, and even though the overhead is low, it's there's not a lot of profit to make unless you're moving a lot of water. And until the last few years, that was sort of impossible to do. I turned 50, and before then, we always knew people who knew somebody who was a graduate student who needed part-time work, something like that. And we reached an age where, A, we didn't want to slap bottles anymore, and B, um, we couldn't find, it wasn't easy to find a driver, uh, you know, to find, find somebody to work like two or three days a week. It, it was just difficult. And uh, it's a business where, you know, we held the keys to many people's homes, especially in the cold of winter, we'd take it inside their house. Mm. And you have to be really careful about who your delivery person is, obviously. They're going into people's homes. So unless it was somebody I thought we felt really comfortable with, we wouldn't hire them unless, you know, we knew somebody who knew them. That's a very difficult call. Mm. So basically we decided we've done this enough. My wife had gone into the syrup business. In the meantime, we made our own syrups that we sold along with the seltzer, and that became mm. a business for her. So huh. I helped her with that business, but that was really her business. So we sold off the seltzer business, kept the syrup business for another uh, 10, 15 years. I enjoyed it a lot at the beginning. I mean, it was something uh, different. People loved it. Uh, I am a, I always had been a foodie, and uh, I wound up being a, a restaurant critic for Pittsburgh Magazine for a number of years after that. Mm. So, I, I mean, it was really great. But at the same time, you know, Pittsburgh is a hilly city. It's snowy in the winter. Vans don't have a lot of traction. It was difficult. Mm. And it's a lot easier to sit in a courtroom and give opinions and make a lot more money 
than, than do the seltzer business. So it was, you know, it was clearly uh, a passion for a while, and then it became a business. And yeah, you know, we just reached an age where it was time to stop. Uh, seltzer used to be huge, and there were a number of seltzer companies in Pittsburgh. And I'm, I was told, or who knows if it's true, um, that. Pittsburgh Seltzer was the largest. Mm. And I know that Jimmy and Molly bought this business, I think, during the Depression. Mm. If I remember correctly. I don't know when it during the Depression, but I'm pretty sure it was during the Depression. So they had it for 50 years. It was always a great business. And, you know, I would go to New York, uh, to Brooklyn to the bottlers and, that's where I learned how to fix machines, and people went out of their way to teach me, and uh, I'm talking about guys who were at that time, we're talking about 1980, were in their 70s and 80s. These are guys who had been in the business since the 20s, and uh, an amazing group of people. Hey, sweetie, you want to talk to this guy for a minute? She's looking for more stuff. Sweetie, talk to the guy. Give the man a minute. I'll give you a minute. I was working at the time in a as an assistant manager in a clothing store, and I decided that I would like to do that too. And we just went – I had business experience, and we just did this together when we got married. We bought mm. it. I thought that it was very exciting because it was very edgy and we were building something up that had been here a long time ago and it was it was really a very neat thing to do at the time. It was rather courageous because we took an old business that was really not in good shape, moved it, set up our own business using bottling machines from 1905, mm. repairing bottles, and Sam was driving to New York and other places on the East Coast, buying bottles, bringing back machinery. And we were sort of flying by the seat of our pants trying to put this together and make it go. Because he started with a small hand bottler, and then we went to the 1905 automatic bottling machine. It took six bottles at a time, but we sort of had a line where he would feed the bottles and I would get take them out, spray a tiny bit of seltzer out, then hand him the next bottle. It, we had this routine that we could do. I think that one, I can tell you that one, one of the nicest things is that people came to visit us that we didn't deliver to or sometimes people just wanted to stop by. And we got to know this group of customers that drove over when they knew we would be there, and they brought their empty bottles back and picked up fresh ones. And they just spent time with us. And I thought that was really great. A lot of times, oh, we would travel. We would go to New York and look at someone's business, or we went to L.A. and we stopped at at someone's seltzer business there because we wanted to see how other people were doing this and how big their business was. And in Connecticut. And then 
we found someone who could make syrups and it didn't go well. They they weren't get we weren't getting our orders, so we learned to make them ourselves. And ours were um pure cane sugar syrups, which is much nicer than corn syrup, I think. And they were delicious and people bought them and made phosphates and made sort of like an Italian soda. I don't know. We worked together. We loaded the truck. We bottled together, and there were hard times. Winter was difficult. Sometimes machinery broke. But, I mean, we, we did this for a long time, and I was very happy when the next person bought it and someone bought it after that person. So Pittsburgh Seltzer still lives. And um, I did my share of lifting. I was actually glad I I didn't get hurt. I'm pretty strong. I got, when Sam wasn't there, I got the cases to the driver who was in the truck loading. So I think that I was ready to do that. And I was ready to see it go to the next person because then the next group, the next three that bought it, would have their own new ideas and their own fresh energy. I'm trying to think if there were other women that were in the business, and I don't think there were. No, actually, there were the Seltzer sisters in San Francisco, and I really didn't meet them, but um, I knew I knew that they were there, and everybody else that I met, they were they were men that were doing this business, and some of them were young, you know, and some of them had been in this business for a really long time. I did not learn to fix the machinery. Sam did that. But that was really important because there's nobody that you could really have as backup when it broke. You you would have to know how to take care of it yourself, how to change washers. It was always we had a chiller made because cold water holds carbonation better. And that was a challenge. So we had to chill our water before we put it into the bottles. And always, I think that keeping the bottles repaired, making sure you got them back, was also a challenge. So, yes, I was ready to sell it. I had done enough. I, You know, it was ready to go to the next person. I was happy that we found someone in Pittsburgh that was ready to do this. You know, we would have done, kept going, I guess, if until we found somebody that felt they could do this. But you had to find a person that had a place that was strong enough that could sort of add it on to something else that they had that had time to do this business, and it worked out beautifully for them. I'm glad that you're doing this. I hope you find lots of seltzer people. I'm curious what kind of people are are getting into the business. Oh, you said husbands and wives, younger. I think that's wonderful. Well, I wish you great luck, and um, I hope it comes out soon. Thank you. Take care. It's now time for our Heard on the Street segment. The first year I started researching the book that became Seltzertopia, I had no idea who to talk to. So I talked to anyone I could find. People on the subway, people on the street. Anywhere I was, I would talk to people and bring out my microphone and ask them the same few questions. What's your name? What's your occupation? What comes to mind when you hear the word Seltzer? And how would your life be different without Seltzer? Those 
scores of interviews really helped me understand the different ways that people were impacted by seltzer in their lives and helped frame my early research. For the Seltzertopia podcast, I thought I'd pull up many of these interviews that are from 2005 um, just to give a sense of the different things that seltzer meant to people. Enjoy. What's your name? Don Wallace. What's your occupation? I run the bankruptcy uh, group. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the word seltzer? Uh, fizz. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I think of. How would your life be different now if it weren't for seltzer? How would my life be different if it wasn't for seltzer? If it wasn't for seltzer, God, I would probably be uh, not as happy as I am right now. Hi, sir. What's your name? Uh, Bob. What's your occupation? Uh, deli manager. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the word seltzer? Seltzer. Uh, scotch and soda. How would your life be different if it wasn't for seltzer? Um, Mickey seltzer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'd be a little drier. What is your name? Carol Joseph. What is your occupation? I'm a librarian. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the word seltzer? Fizz. Bubbling over. Opening out. Coming out of a bottle. <laughs> over. <laughs> Also, egg creams. That's for sure. How would your life be different if it wasn't for seltzer? Oh, I wouldn't have something to drink. That's why. It's one of the few sodas I can drink. Why is that? Because it has no sugar and no caffeine. Sir, what's your name? David Freeman. What is your occupation? Cab driver. When you hear the word seltzer, what's the first thing that comes to mind? The 1940s. That's what they used to drink back then, people. You know, they used to have egg creams and... Uh, and uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, lime Rickies, and they all had seltzer in it. And that's what the, those people used to drink back in those days. How would your life be different today if it weren't for seltzer? What's that? How would your life be different if it weren't for seltzer? It wouldn't be different at all. Hi, what's your name? My name is Jessica Dorfman. What's your occupation? I'm a media educator. When you hear the word seltzer, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Bubbles, carbonation, summer. Because it's, uh, it's cool. <laughs> How would your life be different if it wasn't for seltzer? It brings a little more variety to life. So you don't always have to drink plain water. You can drink bubbly water. Hi, what's your name? David Zinman. And what's your name? Sarah Zinman. What is or was your occupation? Uh, I was uh, a newspaper man at one time. I, I worked for Newsday and the Associated Press, and I covered, uh, I was a medical writer. And you, ma'am? I was a school teacher. When you hear the word seltzer, what comes to mind? What comes to mind is a soda fountain and uh, not having enough money to buy uh, soda with uh, chocolate in it. So I would get uh, uh, seltzer, yeah, for two cents. This was in um, uh, New York and Manhattan. Back in the early, uh, late 30s and early 40s. Well, we didn't know anything about salsa in South Carolina. In fact, I never heard about salsa until I got married and moved north to live with David. So I don't really know anything about salsa, except that I think certain people do use it in drinks, but I've never, <laughs> I don't drink it. And so I, I'm not the person to interview about salsa water. If it wasn't for seltzer, how would your life be different? Well, I wouldn't feel Jewish, I guess. If it weren't for seltzer, my life would not be any different.
we'll end this podcast with our first segment of On the Route with Walter. Walter Backerman is one of the most famous living seltzermen, in part because the media can't resist him, and I think shortly you will see why. A few years ago, Walter picked me up along his route on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and for the next seven hours, I was privileged to shadow him for the day, interviewing him between stops, sitting next to him in the cab of his seltzer truck as he drove. In this first segment, Walter talks about his seltzer customers, who he calls a whole mixed bag of population. Walter describes what the city looks like from a delivery route perspective, as the neighborhoods change decade after decade, and about what it was like for his dad to build his seltzer route back in the 1950s, and Walter's first route when he was just six months old. Warning, there is a run-in with a gun that might be scary for any children listening, and general parking tips, which might be scary for anybody. This customer, every week, every Tuesday, like clockwork, he buys a case of seltzer, bowels around. And then across the street, I have two other customers that buy every two weeks. And uh, one's a doctor, but his wife is like, not English, I, I would think it's uh, Scottish, or one of those, you know, the English accent, blonde, you know, the atypical Celsius drinker. And, uh, and she's interesting, you know, it's like, you know, you have a whole, you have a whole mixed route. Now, before I went to these people, I go to uh, someone, I go every two weeks to Tim Weiner. And Tim Weiner used to be a reporter for the New York Times. And then about, I don't know, five, six years ago, he decided that he wants to write books. So he wrote a book on the CIA. And the first book he wrote, he won a Pulitzer Prize. Now that's gotta be like pretty good. I mean, it's gotta be like you decided like you were acting in a playhouse and then you decided like do a movie and you won an Academy Award. So, you know, that's good. So I just saw Tim Warner. So you actually run into a lot of uh, fascinating people in Manhattan. Manhattan's a whole, uh, it's, uh, it's a whole mixed bag of population. It runs, uh, you know, and, and, and the areas are changing. You know, as, right now this area, 111th and Broadway, my aunt used to live here in the early 1960s. She lived right around the corner on 110th. And in that building, you know, there, that's where George Gershwin lived back in the days. He wrote Rhapsody in Blue in the building with his brother. I mean, so go back, you know, in the 1920s, it was a phenomenal area. And then it fell into like disrepair. And then all of a sudden, like it started to get revitalized. My aunt lived there. I remember as a kid, I, I, I couldn't tell you the year, but I would assume it was like early 60s because Breakfast at Tiffany just came out. And I remember my aunt would tell me how, how George Papa was stunning, you know, and Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> and they lived in the building. And in that building, it said it was a bunch of like people, you know, prostitutes turning tricks, drugs. This Morningside Drive was a crazy area. And now I have like, uh, you know, on the other corner, 110th, uh, my customer used to be head of Parade Magazine. You know, the head of Parade Magazine, this guy's a doctor. Uh, 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 you have uh, Tim Weiner, won a, a Pulitzer Prize. A couple of blocks down, uh, I go to Jim Kelly. Jim Kelly used to be the head of Time Magazine, the head of Time Inc. I mean, you got people in publishing and, you know, all from, and actors, I had a whole bunch of actors lived here. It used to be the soap operas. Now, you know, all my children won't have to live off there, but they lived around here. So you got an exciting, interesting area that years ago was nothing. And if you go a few blocks up, you know, it's, it's actually Main Street Harlem, 120s, 130s. And I have a, a doc, you know, friend, you know, a doctor who got married, he bought a brownstone up there. You know, I have another one that bought one on 116th of Manhattan Avenue. He used to be the head of uh, Sports Illustrated in the old days. It was, uh, you know, these are people that, uh, you know, and you keep moving over. So you find every year what happens is everything gets a little more expensive. 
So then you uh, start to move. And then when you move, you know, it usually brings better people. And then the better people uh, start to encourage business, different business, instead of, you know, like uh, run down bodegas, it becomes high-end little places. And you'll see now, as I go through with my customers, I mean, even Harlem, you got outdoor cafes, you got uh, in parts of Brooklyn that uh, 20 years ago, I wouldn't have went through unless I had two guns on. And I used to run around with two guns back in the days. And because New York was crazy, I got stuck up three times, was shot at, I had five, it was crazy. You would never have, have any idea what it is. And that's why uh, when I had my friend Joe, you know, who's in the law enforcement for 29 years, a police captain, riding around with me to do the route, I told him, you know, you, we have a lot to thank for, for the people, you know, that law enforcement is as good as it is and technology got better. That as soon as some perp commits a crime, you can see it. And so we're all buying people like it. Because back in the days, I mean, one time a guy, I saw at the corner of my arm in the Bronx, I'm delivering soda. You know, I was downstairs, we used to mix soda. I had my old open truck. And, you know, it was a time when you know you, you were vulnerable to getting stuck up. And I see out of the corner of my eye, I see some guy that's a little kosher. He's got an army jacket. That was their thing in the old days. In other words, if you were, you know, like a street thug, uh, you didn't have a holster. You know, when I walked in the street, I had holsters on. They knew that I was legit. I had a permit and everything else. But anyway, when the street thug would do it, they obviously couldn't go to a range to fire their gun. They, they, they weren't getting, a, you know, the normal equipment that you might get, you know, like, like a holster. So what they do is they used to bury it in, in uh, like I have an army jacket with a deep pocket in those years or they, other ways. And this particular day was like 65. So there's no way you should be walking around with an army jacket or went through army jacket. So I see at a corner guy, the pro, guys approaching me. Obviously they see soda, uh, they see me delivering soda. They equate that with money. They know you're collecting money. And uh, and I look to them like, like uh, you know, a pretty woman to a guy who's been jailed for 10 years. You know, they want to... You know, they just want to get over. I said, but I didn't realize that, you know, I know the story and I knew it was up. So as soon as the guy came within a few feet away from me, I had a van at that time and the door would open, you know, open and close. So I purposely, when I was mixing the soda, I see the guy in the corner of my eye. I tucked the right end of the door in. I left the left side open. I tucked the right end. And when he got about a foot away, I opened up into his arm because I knew the gun was about to come. I knocked the gun out of his hand. Took the gun, stood over his head, and I said, you move, I'll blow your blackened head off, and I'm not playing. And I held the gun, I said, just get the hell out of here, because I didn't want to get involved in all the police protocol, because I wanted to go finish my route. You know, nothing happened, it was over. And I had people while I was doing a route in the buildings, you know, customers, call the police, because no years, you had no cell phone. And, and honestly, the police were afraid to go into the, you know, the areas we went to. When I went to a, a ghetto area, they were afraid to go in there. They were afraid of being shot. You know, it was a whole different thing. Now, police go anywhere. I mean, everything's under control. But then it was a lawless society. So I'm talking about 30-something years ago. So now what happens is that it took two hours, no one came. No police, nothing. And finally, when I got done doing the stops in that area, because we had a lot of customers in the building, I had to go to the police station to surrender the gun. And, I mean, that's a helpless, lawless feeling. And it gets to the point where you become, you know, you have to defend yourself. Nowadays, you know something? I walk in the street counter money. I, I look like I'm ready to kill someone if they look the wrong way at me. And obviously I know what to do. I said, and I have no problem. I have people leave money, not only to leave the bowels out for me, 24-7 sometimes, you know, it's out in the building or the day I'm about to deliver. They leave cash sticking out of the case and no one ever touches it. So New York became uh, remarkably safe. I mean, you drive through... You know, I, I drive all over the city. When you drive through central, through areas like Times Square, where literally the cesspool of humanity 30 years ago 
and it was in proximity to Broadway. And, and, and you recall in horror, you were embarrassed to let people know that, you know, that was part of New York City when people came. And now it's so safe, it's like Disney World, and, and New York is so flipped around that I have a customer that, in fact, they moved to Russia now, but he was a reporter for the, uh, for the New York Magazine. But now he's running a magazine in Russia. He's bilingual, he wrote books, he was a very interesting guy. And uh, Michael Idoff. And Michael Idoff, he told me I'd be interested. He gave me a heads up on a story because he knows I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm the quintessential New Yorker, proud of New York. And in a story, he wrote that tourism is so huge in New York, it's like the third most important industry, that you have 50 million people a year visiting New York, spending $50 billion. And, you know, seeing New York, how, how magnificent it is, not only culturally as it always has been, but that it's safe and you can walk around the street. I mean, it makes me feel proud as a New Yorker. And it makes me even happier still that I'm one of the aspects of New York, one of the quirky aspects of New York that still makes our city special. That's right, we gotta roll now because I'll be here all day. Sounds good. So what's the plan for today? You just did three three stops around here, you said? No, I did, I did a whole bunch of people. I've been working since 5.30. So what's the plan for, for here on? Do you, do you have like a list you follow? Like how do you yeah, plan no, I, have, I have two people coming up now that one buys every when he calls every few months. Uh -huh. And uh, in fact, they're both doctors. It's funny, It's both. they're both doctors. One, they're yeah, both doctors. Like, they both call. And uh, yeah, that's the route. You got a lot of people with the, uh, if I ever needed endorsements from doctors, I would have like no shortage. <laughs> He's sad. The doctor so-and-so loves the shelter, doctor. And, and the funny thing about shelter, as opposed to soda, is that soda used to, appealed to a whole different element. It was people who couldn't pay for the soda. They'd say, like, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I'm waiting for my check. I'll, I'll pay you next Tuesday. It was, like, wimpy. And nowadays, what it is is that you got people with uh, who are doing better in life. You know, you have professionals, people who are mainstream salsa customers are generally probably fall into the higher echelon of, uh, of society. You know, and they can afford the shelter, no problem. What, what do you think? Why do you think that's changed? Well, I think uh, someone who would want salsa is, is looking for more healthy things. I got people everywhere. Everywhere you turn, I got a customer. Every street. But you don't have like in the old days where you'd have 10 in one building. And that was the difference. So what, you, you tell me, what, what was your first, uh, first round? First time I ever delivered in the truck? Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, my mother died in March. She was 94. She could have, she would have turned 95 last week. Wow. And uh, she would have told you that the first delivery, my father used to tell me that story all the time. The first delivery I ever made was in the spring of 1953 when I was six months old. And my mother, my father worked a lot of hours. I mean, I was the last of four and my father was trying to build a route up. And in those years, you can get all the seltzer bottles you wanted because they were imported essentially from Czechoslovakia or American-made. They had bottle men who molded the metal tops for you, you know, and made you a bottle. And my father, in the year, I was born in 1952, and when I was born, I asked my father how much the bottle cost at that time for point of reference. And it cost him $17.50 for a case of 10, which is a lot of money. It's like $200 now, maybe more. And when, I, when uh, it, but at that point, you could get it. The business was good. It was thriving. It was a lot of seltzer, man. It was... It's not like now we got a handful left. There were literally thousands of seltzer men. There were there were myriad seltzer trucks all over the city. You could go down to any street on any given day, and you might see two or three seltzer trucks delivering at one time simultaneously. 
And so it was a business that my father wanted to build up. So he would go to areas where there were other salesmen. In other words, like those buildings I delivered to now were building 53. So my father went into canvas and knew it would be a new building. When he had a customer move up to Yonkers because we were a Bronx salesman, he would go up there and, and ring doorbells. And my mother, in order to see my father, because he was on the route 5.30 or 6 in the morning, he would come home at 6 at night tired, and my mother would go with him, would accompany my father in the evening. And my father would ring doorbells while my mother pushed me in a baby carriage at six months of age. And my father would tell people, look, I am, I am Al, I'm a, I'm a, I have a seltzer route, and I'm, I'm you know, looking to build my route up. My father had a very glib, pleasant personality. And he would just ring doorbells. In those years, there was no such things as locks in buildings. Uh, people left doors open. People sit out, sat out on porches, on beach chairs. And when they saw you, and they, then they would all, you know, you, your interest would be peaked. And, and seltzer and soda was a normal thing. In other words, what people would do uh, as far as seltzer is they would buy from the seltzer man. Because even in the store, you know, what we got used to and think is ordinary, like my kids are so used to technology, they don't realize when I grew up there was no such thing as a cell phone, computers. They think it's mainstream part of uh, everything back to the prehistoric era. Just the same thing we think that everything that we use now, all the thing with built-in disposability was a normal thing. In other words, plastic bottles, aluminum cans, everything meant to be chucked away, you know, sometimes recyclable, usually thrown away. In the old days, what we had was we had glass bottles. Everything was glass. Even these major soda companies, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, 7-Up. You can see on the side of my van, one of my graphics, my old seltzer truck. And on the old seltzer truck, which was, that picture was taken when I was 15, so it would have been in the late 60s, you'll see uh, wooden boxes for Coke, Pepsi, 7-Up, glass bottles, and they were heavy. The quartz were heavy. You got a, uh, I remember delivering a case of uh, Pepsi quartz. It was like a case of seltzer. And a case of seltzer in a wooden box weighs 70 pounds. So it wasn't light. And what people had to do is you had to return it to the store. So when you had to return these heavy glass bottles to the store, it was something no one looked forward to. There were no like sales like you get now with those have lost leaders. So rather than have to go the trouble of carrying cumbersome bottles back, you bought from the salsa man or soda man, whatever we sold at the time to them, you bought the product and everyone bought. It wasn't like one person in the building would buy and then you drive to another building. It would be like every person in the building would buy for you. If there was an apartment house with uh, six floors, you probably had 15 to 20 customers in there. And then when you left, there might be another seltzer man. The next day comes in with 10 customers. Virtually everyone bought from the seltzer man. So when you mention the idea of getting home delivery from a seltzer man, to anyone of a certain era, you know, of a certain generation, of a certain time period, it's so commonplace and so ordinary that it's not unusual. And it, and it, it makes them feel nostalgic because they remember their child and how it used to be. So when your dad was ringing doorbells, he was talking to people who probably got bottles from somebody else or had a potentially was, and he was trying to... Or they had seltzer or soda at one point, but just moved into these brand new buildings uh -huh. that my father went to solicit to. He so went was to, he just going to new buildings? He would go to Virgin Territory that okay. was just opening up. In other words, it was a complex that it would have been later in, in Riverdale yeah. in the Bronx. And when my father delivered there, he was, uh, you know, he was it. No one else was doing it. Do you know what he'd wear? Like, was he have a uniform he'd wear? Well, he actually was a... Uh, you know, say like, this is the passenger zone. I always wonder about parking there, but since you're here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna park on a fire hydrant. I'll run up and down. I would hate to run up and deliver and get a hundred fifteen dollar ticket. That I would fight because I could double park. That I could be fire hydrant. I can't. Happy to sit here. But if you're behind the wheel, and just to let you know the law. Yeah. If they came by the scan, make sure you get behind the seat. Okay. A licensed driver behind the wheel 
thorn to dust kind of fire hydrant is allowed to stand. Okay, so that's the law. So they're really not supposed to pick you. However, if you read further in the law, which they don't know the law anyway, the traffic agents, but I do, it says in the passenger vehicle. They don't have to say anything about a commercial vehicle, and even the traffic judges don't know. But basically, if they see you behind the wheel, you will never get a ticket. That's the law. So that's it. Now let me go deliver. And then Walter went and delivered. Over those roughly 20 minutes, I got a few questions in, but mostly I just listened. Next episode, we'll continue the ride with Walter, hearing about his experience during the 9-11 attacks, in which he wound up in the apartment of Calvin Klein's mother, and how he tried to get a seltzer bottle to then-Mayor Bloomberg, and being labeled a stalker as a result. That's about it for this first Seltzertopia podcast. All you siphon heads can continue the adventure on my website, seltzertopia.com, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash seltzertopia, or on Twitter or Instagram. Until next time, keep it seltzer and find your fizz. I said, you came all the way here from Manhattan in traffic. It took you two hours. I think you're looking for Jesse James, and all you find is Walter Seltzman with a kid with his son offering you seltzer. I said, are you guys relieved or you're disappointed? <laughs>